Hello and welcome to this episode of PandaVision. Today we're talking about The Orville, Season 2, Episodes 8 and 9, a two-parter, Identity Part 1 and 2. For everybody who's been wondering what we talk about in that spoiler section, this was it. All that and more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome to PandaVision, the Stranded Panda podcast where we talk about all these geeky TV shows that don't fit so neatly into all our other podcasts. My name is Matthew Carroll. I'm Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox, how you doing, bud? I'm good, I'm good. You know, I, I made that joke about the spoiler because this is... I, I actually was kind of surprised that this two episode comes in the middle of the season because it's such a big deal and it so changes everything about the show you know, it's been a couple of years since I saw this season. I I had remembered that it was at the very end. Yeah. So th- I knew there was at least one more because they have that. Uh, they have they have at least one more episode that I recall. Right. But like, I didn't I didn't think there were three or four episodes. It looks like there's. Uh, I think there's. It's fourteen total, and this was eight and nine. So it's yeah, five episodes left. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. I I feel the same way. Yeah, it was very weird to me. I made a joke there. All the things we've been saying about, like, well, we'll talk about that in the spoiler section for those who hadn't known yet. I, I don't think we need that anymore because for the most part, what that was about was these conversations, you know, this changes everything so much. And so I think with the first 15 minutes of the first episode, I was like, oh, I don't remember they go to Kalon twice this season because this can't be the one where they all turn evil. But nope, here we are. Yeah, I, I will also re- I remember this was a two parter. And so when it came out that this was the two-parter, I was like, oh, wait, yeah, this is it. Dang. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I did not realize it was so soon. Uh, but yeah, this is, uh, this is exciting. Uh, I think this episode's, I mean, clearly it's the biggest thing that happens this season. It sets right. the entirety of the uh, Union on like a totally new course. Um, the fact that they had to make peace with the Krill is huge. Uh, mm-hmm. And I believe I believe we get more of that coming up. Like, what happens when you've made peace with your enemy? And it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but they're not really right. friends. Um, and there's that that really like almost melancholy moment where Mercer talks to mm-hmm. the Krill captain and says, "You know, thanks for helping us. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we could uh, find you know something to work together on, or whatever, a, a way to work together." And he said, "Avis has." Uh, Combined our paths for a reason. We will find out what it is. Uh, right. And that just highlighted their differences. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Mercer, the, the look on Mercer's face is like, oh, they're this, this ser- these servants of Avis that like, yeah. you know, they're, they're, no, they're not helping us because of any kind of empathy or any kind of like recognition of our humanity. Uh, they're purely helping us because mm-hmm. they're serving their God. Uh, and it, it's, it's a dark moment because- in a way, just highlights their differences while highlighting the fact that they needed to work together. Well, especially because it, it, it reminded me of some of my favorite science fiction, because I think a lot of times in science fiction, there's this idea of that if you've got a bunch of you know groups that are fighting with each other, once they realize that there's a threat that they're all fighting, they unify. And that even after that threat's defeated, like, that they they stay together as one, you know? And kind of, like, a lot of Star Trek is about that, Babylon 5, you know? A lot of these ideas of, like, you know, kind of, like, you unify against a larger threat. Right. One of the reasons why I really love the book Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, and 
I will say Orson Scott Card is not a person I want to support, and I am not gonna. I'm glad I have my copies of his books. I'm not gonna give him any more money. That's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you know in that book, one of the key ideas is that all of humanity, everyone on Earth, has unified against this alien threat. But even like a week or two before the end of the war, as they know that the war is about to come to an end. All the nations of the world are starting to jockey for position. You know, are starting to realize, like, the minute this uber threat goes away, we're going right back to our past rivalries and conflicts and maybe even wars with each other. And that, that kind of forms a basis of some of the next series of books. Um, and so, yeah, I, I like that a lot here that, you know, it's not that the Kalon are going to be, especially because to some extent, by the end of this, the Kalon have been for the moment, defeated, you know? And and I think there's a lot of ways in which the Kalon are very much like the Borg, and we can definitely talk about that. And, you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing of, like, the first attack by the Kalon has been defeated, but the enemy is still out there. And yet you have to kind of wonder, like, okay, without the immediacy, without a literal gun to their heads, are the Alliance, are the Union and the Krill going to be able to stay as, you know, how long can they stay as allies with this hypothetical threat out there that isn't an actual physical invasion yet? Mm-hmm. So for it's gonna be really interesting to see how that all plays out. For sure, for sure. By the way, I gotta mention this because I just found this out. But my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, her her dad was friends with Orson Scott Card, or is friends with Orson Scott Card. I don't know if he's still around. Okay, anything about it. Uh, but one of the Ender's Game's character is based on my sister-in-law's brother okay in that cool. weird i think it's yeah. one of the ones that's like the lead of the second or third book anyway, okay anyway it, it, like when they finally had to flesh out that character and he needed to like draw on ex- life experience mm-hmm. he drew on experience of my sister-in-law's little brother which i found fascinating i just found this out at christmas this year i was like that is so weird and i know that orson scott card is <laughs> There's some uh, there's some uh, political things there that are, are are like you said someone you don't want to support, but mm-hmm. that is still completely fascinating. I found that like what a crazy coincidence, or not even coincidence, just what a crazy thing to yeah have no, a weird connection to. Those world of small moments are always just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also one thing that I really liked about these episodes, um, and I don't, we should probably maybe give like a quick summary for those people who maybe saw it a couple of years ago, but are just listening to us to help us kind of like get refreshed for season three. But I'll, you know, uh, uh, we can go into that in a bit. But, uh, you know, long story short, this is where we find out that the Kalons are evil, or at least that they, they want to conquer everything, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing I think you really get a sense of is th- there are times when writers will just kind of like throw something out there and like, oh, yeah, this plot has always been there in the background. But then you go back and watch old episodes. And it doesn't line up. It doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. And it's pretty clear that the writers decided to kind of like retroactively add that. Right. Um, you know, the Seth MacFarlane and others have made clear. And I think as I was watching it the whole time, I definitely got the sense. They knew from day one that the Kalon were not what they appeared to be. You know, mm-hmm. and I think I think some of the details of it, what was going to happen with Isaac, you know, they probably didn't know everything in advance. But they definitely had an understanding that the Kalon were going to turn out to be a lot scarier and a lot more um, deceitful than they had planned. And then everyone had thought. And I just, you know, I, I, the whole season, even last season, I was watching going like, okay, is Isaac going to do something that doesn't line up with this? But everything he does, once you know his mission, is perfectly in line with it. 100%. Such wonderful patience on the part of the writers to have this character that they mm-hmm. clearly want to do this with. 
uh, but they left him in the background. And the first scene of this episode is Isaac sitting and playing a game with the boys, and he's telling them, you know, like, oh, yeah, I beat you because it, and you should expect that because I'm intellectually superior to you. Um, and while in this episode, uh, he decides that they're, wor- they're worth something and decides to turn on his own people to save them, it is still sort of a dark mo- moment when I'm, when I'm lo- watching this episode knowing that's coming. I'm watching this and I'm like, that's, that's the whole thing, right? Like, this is supremacy. Like, this is, right. we're better than you. Like, we don't see value in you. And that's what, that's what they end up saying. Like, he wasn't actually there to decide if we wanted to join your union, which Isaac knew. Isaac knew, uh, you know, we're, we're not, I wasn't here to decide right. your union. We were here to decide whether you were worth preserving. And the thing that Isaac does to turn his people, which I love because it's not, inconsistent with his programming is mm-hmm. that he decides they are worth preserving. Now, whatever that right. means, like why they're worth preserving is something I think he's still going to have to unravel. Uh, Cause it's still a non-emotional reaction. He just has this reaction. That's like, it is, it's illogical to throw this guy out of an airlock. Like, yeah, this, this isn't going to work. You know, like you're, you're, you, he, he wants to preserve all the human life on board. And there's also this interesting, thing concept running through this episode about um Isaac has this experience with these people mm-hmm. and that he, he downloads all of that to the Kalon but the Kalon right. have made a different decision than Isaac right right and his experience matters like even though they have all of his downloaded data somehow there's something experiential going on with Isaac that he's seeing more or experiencing more than they are. Right. And the Kalon have a similar line to, to him. He says, they say, you weren't alive when we had to overthrow our creators, but we were. We, we, we downloaded all that data to you, but right. you didn't get it. And then they give him roots to, to download and, and, and understand right. like, the kind of oppression that these humans are, are capable of. But I found that fascinating, the idea that, like, you can get all the data to understand someone or something, but the experience of being face-to-face with someone can, yeah. can engender a different, somehow engenders something different to you. I think it's very true, especially because, you know, um, there's so much here to keep talking about. Let's pause, though, and do just a quick episode summary for those oh, who haven't oh, seen sorry. it. <laughs> no, you're fine, you're fine. I, I, I was about to jump right in and continue. So basically, um, I'm going to go very fast over a lot of the details here. Just kind of hit the high points. Um, at one point, Isaac just stops, and the crew is panicked. They think he's sick. They think he's broken. They go back to Kalon to try to figure out what's happening, where they find out that, no, he's fine. It's just his mission was over. He had, in theory, learned everything he was supposed to learn, and so his machine had automatically you know, turned itself off. They go back to Kalon. Uh, the Kalons start like downloading all of his memories and experiences to study it. We learn as the audience that they're actually doing this because uh, maybe they would have joined the union if they decided that like non-mechanical life was worth saving. But but the real thing that the Isaac was supposed to figure out was is non-mechanical life worth saving? And there's some things there where kind of like humanity and the union get equated in the same way that like humanity and Starfleet often do that drives me crazy. But that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. So you know we see more of the Kalon, and then of course there's just shenanigans happen, and um, people are concerned about Isaac. They go looking for him, including Ty, especially uh, Claire's younger son. And so the humans wind up eventually finding out what's supposed to happen. 
And so the Kalon act, they take everyone prisoner, and they launch this whole fleet to go to Earth, to wipe out Earth, uh, to start the whole destruction of all like non-mechanical sentience. I think they have a word for like non-mechanicals. It may just be non-mechanicals. I don't remember what it is. Biologicals, thank you. Um, and if anyone's seen Battlestar Galactica, there's a lot of echoes here, especially with what I'm going to get into next. Um, one of the things that happens, and one of the things that kind of they discover, which is part of why uh, the Kalon have to act before they were ready, before they wanted to, is that underground on the planet Kalon, there are these huge mass graves. They're at this point just like piles of skeletons of billions of people. And what you find out is that um, again here, this is very much like Babylon 5, especially the new one. The Kalons were built by whatever biological race lived on that planet and were not treated well. They were treated as, um, you know, anyone who's seen any kind of thing from Starfleet about like, you know, droid rights or things like that. Uh, Jacob Leachich, I hope you're tuning into this. Uh, uh, you know, it's got also, we, we talked about this a lot like in an episode I just done superhero ethics about the Matrix. You know, there's a lot of science fiction stories about like, once you recognize that robots are people, that they're sentient, treating them the way you would treat their toaster is actually kind of horrific. And that in this case, actually, not only did, like, once the people on this planet realized that the robots were no longer just mindless machines, but they could make, they could make their own decisions, they started torturing them. They installed, like, these pain devices and stuff like that. So that's a really great part of the story and helps to um, not justify what the Kalon are doing, but give it a little bit more of an explanation of why they are so concerned about humanity and, and, and biologicals and all this kind of stuff. Because they have a belief that the two cannot coexist peacefully, that at some point the two of them are going to have to come into conflict. Right. Um, so the whole fleet is going towards Earth uh, while our heroes are all trapped there. There's a couple of attempts to stop things. Uh, some of them go somewhat well, some of them don't, but they do get a message to Earth. And as part of that, um, uh, Ty, again, the youngest son, is one of the ones who's caught, uh, you know, kind of causing mischief. Uh, Yafit gets to be a hero, which is an awesome thing. Yafit's always been a favorite character of mine. And and uh, the head, Kalon, is realizing that Isaac may not be fully on board. And is concerned about that, because as he sees it like we're machines, we should all process the data and come to the same conclusion. Um, which is kind of tying into what you were saying, which we'll get to more in a second. Uh, but Isaac is, you know, so he, he wants Isaac to be the one to kill Ty as a way of kind of making sure, like making Isaac prove, you know, it's that classic, like, are you a, uh, undercover cop? Are you really with us? You have to kill someone to, to prove your, prove your metal. Uh, there's a lot of cliches in this episode, but they're all really well done and kind of interesting to see how the cliches fit in this particular kind of story. Um, so Isaac refuses to do that. He turns on the Kalons. Um, meanwhile, some of our heroes have escaped and have gone to the Krills to kind of ask the Krills to work together because of this existential threat. And then by the end of the episode, a combined force of the Krills and the Union is able to defeat the Kalon with heavy losses on all sides. Um, and they all kind of agree like that there's kind of an uneasy peace now between the Kalon and the Krill. And then also in the crew, there's sort of a like, some of us are like so happy that Isaac turned again and saved us. Some of us don't trust him. And there's, there's, so there's kind of like a, a microcosm of the tension in the ship and a macrocosm mm. between these great powers. So yeah, that's a uh, 80 minutes of television in three minutes. <laughs> you bring up, bring up that final scene. I love that when they wake him up, there's just this unease among, the, among them because they, they convince the Admiral 
that it's it's best to leave Isaac alive because him turning on his own people is what allowed them to live and what allowed them to win. But there, there's a lot of consternation, even his friends, people who considered him a friend last episode, you know, uh, are, right. are saying like, no, we should leave him. We only were in that position that he had to save us from because he turned on us. And it's a, it's a great moment. It, it, to me, one of the things that really highlights, and I'm really glad as you pointed out that it is still the act of a machine that he decides, like he does still make a machine learning decision um, to, to help them. It, I really appreciate it. Cause one of the things that has frustrated me about the way the crew treats Isaac and, and this frustrates me a lot in science fiction, but I do think at least that the show recognizes that the, the crew was was wrong, is, you know, we as humans like to personify everything. You know, we like to say, like, oh, you know, my computer's mad at me because I didn't, you know, I, I uh, you know, didn't turn it on for a couple of days, and so that's why it's crashing. You know, we, we like to personify things, and, and um, it's silly, because, like, machines don't do those kind of things. And... Uh, Isaac obviously is sort of this interesting mix of a machine and a person, and he has sentience in all these ways, so it's not quite the same thing. But I think everyone on the crew wants to, especially Claire, wants to project emotions onto Isaac. And so from Claire, there's a lot of like, how could you do this? How could you, you know, does it mean that everything was fake? Does it mean that every, and, and the answer is, is, it's not that everything was fake, it's that Isaac was very clear with her about what he could and couldn't feel. And, but she, he did the things that to her made her feel loved. So she projected a sense of, she projected this emotional idea of love onto him. And the crew projected a sense of trust onto him. So that when he did things that, as they understand those emotions, goes against what they thought he was doing, they feel betrayed. But the reality is Isaac was very clear. Like he never had any of those emotions and feelings. So I, I felt very like I was really happy with how consistent they made Isaac's character in that regard. And that they kind of let, like, I think it's very, I'm very empathetic and I can very much relate to why the crew and especially Claire feels the sense of betrayal. But to some extent, they projected emotions on someone who was very clear from the beginning that those emotions were never going to be there, that they couldn't be there. Yeah. A hundred percent. The, uh, the Claire storyline is fascinating, and it really makes me curious about how that will go into the future. Um, what kind of relationship they can have? Can she trust him again? Like, because the things that he did, this betrayal that he performed, was was down. And she even says it in the forgiveness moment. She has this discussion about forgiveness and how it has to begin somewhere, and she's choosing to forgive him, um, which seems very abrupt, honestly. <laughs> mm -hmm. but like I think she really wants to forgive him she really cares about him um, but can she ever really trust him fully again Big, she says it in the, in that conversation she says you know I, I understand that what you did you know was you being you you know like that, right. that you, you making this decision was part of you and I accept that part of you and I'm like I don't know I don't know man can you accept that part of him <laughs> The part of him that's willing to go along with that. But the truth is, he wasn't willing to go along. He, And as far as he understood, they had not made their decision yet. Like, he, they were right. he, they were deciding whether life was worth preserving. And I'm, I'm assuming he thought they make they would make the same decision he, he would by himself, which is... Right. But they have so much pain from the, the these uh, sentences that have been alive since the purge of their creators... 
um, that they aren't willing to, uh, you know, uh, risk being, uh, right. you know, confronted with these biologicals again. Yeah, and like I said, it's so funny because I literally just yes, just yesterday posted on the Superhero Ethics Podcast this whole discussion of AI, and in theory, it was about the movie The Matrix. I think we talk about The Matrix for maybe 30 seconds, <laughs> mostly we talk about AI itself, but in part <laughs> because... Both of my guests are really experts in it, including one of them who who builds AIs, um, you know, and has really studied the, the theory and ideas of it. And this is one thing we talked about a lot, is that, like, one of the kind of, like, the, in theory, machine learning should be, you know, if you input all the same data into eight different computers that all have the exact same modeling software, they should all come to the exact same conclusion. But that part of the idea of AI is that you learn, you know, kind of like if you put all this data into one model the model will learn to adjust its model, you know? And so it is still a computational thinking of, I'm going to calculate all the data and come to the conclusion that is mathematically calculated by this model that I've built, but that the model will change, you know? And so that in that same way, like Isaac has, you know, Isaac realizes that after he becomes very used to having people around, his functioning decreases when they aren't around. All these others, real, you know, had this experience of being tortured and being horribly treated by these sentients. And again, it, it's one of those times where you kind of see the the limits sometimes of this kind of machine learning, where it's like, if I have a bad experience with one person, there's some level of thinking which might tell me, okay, this person was different from me in this way. Therefore, all people who are different from me in this way will treat me in this bad way. Right. With that very limited set of context and experiences in a purely rational, logical sense, perhaps a logical conclusion to make. It's actually not logical once you think about, like, well, why would you extrapolate the data from this one person to everybody else? But if you don't have any other data, it's hard to mm -hmm. know that. And and so, yeah, I, I kind of love that. And I love that they kind of, um, they, they, sh they show that that difference. We'll talk more about that in a second, but just pulling it back to what you're talking about with Claire, I think on some level, Claire still can't trust him. Because I think, what I think I have seen is, and of course you see it differently, what Isaac has done is to say, I'm still going to use the same kind of rational, logical, computer, mechanical calculus to decide what to do, but you all have convinced me that you are, you bring value to me, and so I'm willing to keep that. I think, though, given, like, what I think is missing there and what Claire, what Claire would want to trust is compassion, is empathy, is Isaac having personally developed enough feelings for Claire and for her children and for thus humanity in general, that he has that kind of like, it might be best for me to hurt them, but I don't want to do that. You know, mm. like, and I think that's that empathy part is what I think, at least as they're writing it now, maybe this will change in season three. That's what an AI like Isaac, at least, isn't capable of um, as they're writing it now. And so I think that's just a really interesting thing where I feel like I... I, I don't want to see a whole other story where Isaac betrays them again, but I do think that Claire, like, I don't know if Claire yet understands that the kind of empathy and compassion that she thinks she's seeing from Isaac, that, that that's not the case. Yeah. Now, I, I thought a lot about that. I, I don't know why. The, previously watching this, I, I think I just was like, okay, there, we're done with the Kalon for a while, but the truth is, like, there's a ton. I mean, I think, I think they're going to still be at war. And Isaac has these strong desires, uh, for lack of a better term, to be with his people. Uh, you know, as Primary is dying, he says, you will always be alone. 
Like, mm. and that's just, that's tough, man. That's tough. Yeah. Like we all long to be a part of a community and it seems like even the Kalon, even if it's just for like the purposes of feeling not feeling <laughs> the purposes of being better at who they are, uh, which is kind of how he learned to feel towards Claire or think towards right. Claire. Um, it's hard to even talk about these Kalon. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's the same way that he should be thinking about his people and like, you know, being part of the Kalon community makes him a more efficient Kalon, a better Kalon. But now he's been ostracized. He says, um, my actions have made it impossible to return home and their actions have removed my desire to do so. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so sad. <laughs> it's just that he's sitting there taking a picture of home as he talks to Claire Mm -hmm. he's become an even more interesting character than before he's got mm -hmm. this pathos put on top of him that is an emotional reaction that we're putting on him but still it, like i i just his long longing to have a home and how he will right. never, never really be at home again yeah no, i think that's true i think the whole kind of like idea of like the person between worlds who doesn't really fit one place or the other it's really interesting and it's a great mm -hmm. story i think another thing and this is kind of just going back to something you were saying before about how like isaac and them have learned different things as i said i think i think it's a really good sort of way of thinking about like machine learning and, and ai and stuff like that but also to me it's such a great reminder of you know, I think it's something we say in terms of like, you know, a lot of these discussions about like racism or sexism or, or violence or any of these kind of things is I can tell you all about what it is like to be in a wheelchair. And I can tell you the frustration of getting to a place and realizing like there isn't a ramp and I can't get in. I don't think you're ever going to know what it's like. Mm -hmm. In the same way that, like, you know, a, a, you know, when a black person talks to me about microaggressions and racism that they deal with, I, I can develop a lot of empathy. I can draw connections between my own experiences, but I'm never going to truly know what that's like. And, and to some extent, I always have to remember, like, I can't speak with the expertise that that other person does because it's not something I'm ever going to fully can see, I fully experience. And I love that that, like, you see that with both sides here, you know, and I think clearly I think we can say that, like, the, you know, this old expression, like, hurt people hurt people, you know, and that, like, not lots of people have horribly abusive situations and don't grow up to hurt people. I'm not saying that at all, but that there is a sense that, that, that it is something that can, is very understandable of, like, you know, either as an individual person or kind of like as a, as a group, you know, you're treated in horrible ways and it gives you a sense of, like, we have to protect ourselves, we have to be fearful and vigilant, you know, like, I think in many ways, um, you know, Magneto and the Kalons would get along very well, you know, mm -hmm. because I think Ma what the, the lesson Magneto learned of the Holocaust and and the lesson that the Kalons learned from their situation are very similar of, you know, we, we can't trust anyone else. And there's an extent to which Isaac can never understand that. He can't claim to know it, but he also, but also he's, you know, they have, and again, this kind of ties into all the other sides of those things, you know, like... So much, I think, often when people like dislike or distrust a group, it's because like they don't know anything from that. You know, they they hear people talk about the gays or the blacks or the Jews or the disabled or whatever it is, but they don't they don't have any experience of that. It's just like this this outer group that we know about, and that's where so much of the isms come in. And and so seeing it from the other side of these people have had one very negative experience with biologicals. And now they're projecting that onto everyone. And Isaac has had actual lived experience. 
in some ways, it kind of proves that the whole mission can't work because I, you know, it's like someone goes and like lives for a year with a group of people and has all these experiences and then writes a book about it. I mean, even living with them isn't the same as being one, but still like reading the book isn't the same as living it, you know? And I, I think there's just so much there in terms of the difficulty of passing on those experiences to someone who hasn't actually lived them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I totally see that. The thing that it also reminded me a lot of, and I don't know how to put this in the context of the Kalon, but when we're all online, there's this lack of empathy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There's just, it's just the classic, classic story of this lack of empathy because we're all living online now. But when we're face-to-face, it's different. And this pandemic has even more exacerbated this idea that you... It's it's exactly what you're talking about with seeing someone, and it's not just a, a race of people, but it's all people. Just like seeing someone face to face, there's just something different that happens when you're actually interacting with a human being um, that you can learn to empathize. And that seems to be what they're saying here with the Kalon are somehow able to have that same sort of reaction by experiencing things that not just downloading data just doesn't do. Uh, and it mm-hmm. makes me wonder uh, w- what our emotions, it, c- it comes down to like what our emotions too. like, he's not capable of emotions, but if emotions as he expressed in that kind of love story episode, like are just, I, I, I find, I f- see your worth, you know what I mean? Right. Like, can, can that be the same thing as love? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really complex. It's like, it's asking the questions of what are what is an emotional reaction? What is empathy? Um, right. What is like placing value on someone's life? And it does that have to be an inherently emotional process? And clearly not to Isaac. You know, I, I forgive me. I keep plugging this. It's, it's I'm not not trying to push people to go listen to it. Though of course, <laughs> if you listen to it, it's great. It's more just that it's so relevant to this. One of one of the things that I learned in this conversation, because uh, Dan McCreary, one of my guests, is so knowledgeable with AI, he's the one who who helps design them. You know, he was talking about how one of the problems with machine learning is that sometimes, like, if you feed it a limited set of data without greater context, it, it will try to extrapolate that data to all situations in ways that aren't always accurate. You know. And, and, and sometimes there can be almost this kind of like what he described as what we would see as a fear response of like, if you only tell the computer about the three times something went wrong, then it's going to think every time, you know, if you tell it that A happened and then B happened, but don't tell it any times that A happened, but B didn't happen. Anytime A happened, it's going to think B should happen. Right. Exactly. And as they were explaining it, I, I sort of chimed in and said, well, you know, listen, I, I certainly am not a tech person like that. And I'm not a trained therapist. But as someone who has some counseling background, but also myself has uh, PTSD and has studied PTSD and borderline and things like that quite a lot, one of the things I understand is like there's a thing with like, you know, your amygdala and like the way that like fear responses get programmed in, in terms of like when you have traumatic experiences, you know, if you have a, if, if, you, if you have a traumatic experience where A happens and it leads to B, it's very difficult to then later have A happen without being suddenly very afraid of B happening. And that's where like triggering and things like that come in. Uh, and again, I'm talking very layman's terms here. If you're a, if you have a therapist, please don't yell at, if you know more about this, would love to hear you with, with thoughts and comments and correct me, but please understand I'm not claiming any men- mental health expertise here. Mm-hmm. But because then the conversation was that we were talking about was the, yeah, actually in that regard, like the, the human brain 
like works in a similar way. In, like there, there is a lot of machine learning and computational thinking in our human brains. And part of that is the way like the amygdala and things like that process trauma. And so having like, I think you could accurately say that the Kalons have a machine equivalent to, to a PTSD trigger response kind of a thing where like they had this experience with biologicals. And so now they're translating that to everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we talked a lot about the sort of, uh, you know, what we, what me and you love to do when we get together and talk about, which is the sort of like, uh, ethical experience and yeah. like, like <laughs> interactions here. But can I just say this episode is so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Like it is high. I don't know. It's like science, science fiction mm. adventure at its best. Like when, mm-hmm. it, you know, I was watching the episode and I'm so used to, these sh- this show particularly doesn't focus too much on the action because yeah. you know it's a show that very much is trying to ask the moral questions and tell these morality tales. But when they boarded the ship at the end of the first episode, I was like, okay, well the the guns are out. This will be the end of the episode. But then they actually like spent some time walking around the ship with the Kalon killing people and like. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, as much as I'm normally the guy who's like, yeah, once you've told the story, get out. I don't need to see your action sequence. Like, it's terrifying watching yeah. Isaac. Like, I mean, the Kalon all look the same. So, like, I'm sorry if that was Kalon racist, but um, <laughs> uh, the Kalon all look the same. So, when they, those guns come out of the side of their head and he, and they all start fighting and killing all the humans, I was just like, this is this is horrifying. This is a basically the character we've been watching and falling in love with for two seasons going around killing everyone. And it was actually very effective. And the last scene um, of the, of the second episode too, when they really let them like, they're coming for earth. They did a great job in these action sequences of like Mercer's like, uh, did this last stand with these three Mm -hmm. Kalon ship are going toward earth. And they know they have these high powered particle weapons that could destroy earth. And he, he says, uh, you know, turn on the self-destruct. We're going to overload the, the quantum drive. And he's just going to like, you know, kamikaze his ship directly into these Kalon to save Earth. And it's just such a powerful, like, yes! Like, yeah. I'm, I'm ready to see the heroes be heroes. And like, the action sequences, they, they, they allow them to make these cool decisions inside the action sequences. Of course, that's the exact moment when the Krill arrive and save yeah. the Orville and save all of them. Um, but also... When the krill arrive, they arrive with Malloy in a krill shuttle, which is a great moment because he's the you know best pilot in the fleet kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He's getting to fly a krill shuttle. I just, man, it's so much fun. This episode is just a blast to watch. It really was. Like I mean, often reference to it, but watching Yafit get to be a hero yeah. made me so happy. You know, and like yes, he has like some really questionable uh, choices early on in in the first season with Claire, but I think they kind of got away from that. And then like you know, he gets to do some great thing, and he gets to do things that like are based on his ability to you know what he can do with his body, and it's fun to see them utilize that. Yeah. Um, you, you said about how the the Kalon look the same, and, and you're totally right. The one change they make, but it's so powerful and so intimidating is the the change like Isaac has yellow colored eyes and they're yep. basically just like yellow lights on the screen of his face blue, blue eyes I believe oh you're right I'm sorry blue all the others have red and while Isaac is like in sort of like evil Isaac mode his are red as well mm-hmm. and like it are they? I don't think it, I, I'm pretty sure they were I I'm pretty sure like the, I don't know I, I, 
I think there was a scene where I, I remembered like that I couldn't tell him apart except by how he was speaking. Okay, I, I um, thought I remembered he was he was blue the whole time because because I remembered thinking he's always. He, you can always okay. track Isaac. But either way, just the effectiveness of the red eyes, it mm-hmm. was just like the minute you landed on Kalon and saw that, you were already like, something's up. So, mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen the first time I saw it, but I could tell like, this is not, these are not all Isaacs. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the idea of the blue eyes is pretty neat. He also picked his name to be Isaac. Um, like, I. I like the idea that he was created as this diplomat bot to go with the humans. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he has blue eyes isn't like weirdly inconsistent. It's just like he was created to be the friendly face of the Kalon, you know, um, it, not friendly in, in effect, but like, but they still wanted him to be accepted so that he could right. learn about these people. So it just makes sense that his eyes, he would, he would study the human race and be like, oh, red eyes is a thing with them. Let's not do that mm-hmm. uh, while I'm here. I'll put on my blue eyes. Uh, it's, it's, super, it's super fun. I think there is a scene where he has red eyes. I don't know if it's this episode, though. The Kalon is great. And when Isaac, the, another great adventure story moment, when Isaac say, kills the primary and saves uh, the young boy, then he goes and he does something with the computer to do an EMP pulse and stop all the Kalon on the ship. He looks and he says, I'll be shut down too. You have to go let them out. Here's the code because he's, he's like willing to sacrifice himself. And that's just another great, like I just, I love a hero moment. I love a good, like a well-earned hero moment. And it's just such a great one. It's a great hero moment. Yeah, the adventure part of it was so good. Um, I, I I didn't love the, the space fighting. I thought some of those effects, I was like, yeah, I would like to have a bigger budget or not do this as much. But I thought the, the, the robot attacking each other was so good. Yeah. Um, and just like, there's just some little details that again, just show Seth. Well, there's two different details I want to point out that do two different things. And feel free to jump in or spot either one of them. Did you notice that all the people who die, all the people who we see get killed by the Kalon are wearing red shirts? No, I didn't. That's amazing. Yeah, it's such a great little Star Trek nod, you know, yeah. like, and, and like, it's funny because like, we haven't had a Star Trek show where wearing a red shirt means you die in probably 30 years. Like, <laughs> it's a little bit next generation, but even then they change it. It's mostly just the original series. Well, the thing is, it's actually not even true in the original series. Apparently someone did the analysis. It's not true. Like, it's not mm. even, red shirts actually don't die more often. The reason it seems they do is the red shirts are the security guards. So often mm. when they go to a planet, the guy who goes off by himself and ends up dying is a security guard. But they did like, someone did like, the analysis of the original series. It's not even true, but it is a common trope. Oh, okay, the red shirt it, is the one. That it's dies. probably it's the named person instead of like the scientist friend who you get to know a bit who then dies. Exactly. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. But either way, so the, having them as red shirts was perfect. So good. And then like, I think one of the things I love so much about the Orville is that it does this great job of recognizing that no matter what situations people are in, you know, the mundanity of life, like you think about a TV show like The Office, which is all about kind of the mundanity of of day-to-day life. And the Orville, kind of also like the, the animated show Harley Quinn, does such a good job of like 
um, just continuing to show that mundanity, you know, that that still happens, you know, like in Harley Quinn, there's moments where at, you know, the evil headquarters of evil, Joker <laughs> and Bane and Penguin are fighting over who gets the best parking spots because they do have to drive to this League of Evil headquarters and there's parking <laughs> spots. And and there's a moment here and I wrote it down I admit, because we watched a couple weeks ago and then some stuff happened. So I don't remember exactly how it ha- happens. But, like, Bordis and I think Kelly get into a discussion of, is the corner piece the best piece of a cake? You know? Yes. And I'm very much on corner pieces best, and oh, other people sure. are not. And my, my partner and I disagree, which is great, because we always know who's going to eat what piece. But I just, like, you know, it's like you're in space. And like, I, I think sometimes with some of these other shows, there's a sense of, like, oh, come on, that's, that's too mundane. We won't talk about it in space. But, like, why wouldn't you? You know, yeah. it's kind of like when, when Malloy would bring, like, a large soda into the the bridge. It's yep. like that, you know... It was Lamar, but yeah, Lamar in the first Lamar, episode. yeah, thank That's you. One Just, of my fa- that <laughs> is the encapsulation of what is so good about the comedy on this show. And it is, it, mm-hmm. that, that it's all that mundane comedy most of the time. But, like, like the, the adventures are real, the stakes are real, the morals, tales are real, but, like, the comedy is all about the mundane. It's so clever. But in the first episode, they do a little more like broad comedy, the, the first uh-huh. few episodes. But that joke is always the one I point to. They're like, that's, yep. that's dead on. Like a, a crewman asking if he can have sodas on the bridge. As long as you keep it under the equipment, I guess it's fine. It's like, cool, cool, cool. It's so good. So good. Yeah. And, just, and, and that's what I love is that it's, it, you know, because those mundane things are always going to be with us. And it, it humanizes it to me in a way. And it's the kind of thing like, I never watched Star Trek thinking, I wish someone would talk about like, is the corner piece the best piece of cake? But now I see it in Orville and I'm like, yeah, like we will still be having those questions and thoughts and, you know, and, and weird, you know, like it doesn't matter what building you're driving to. If everyone's driving to the same building, who parks where matters, you know, (laughs) if you're sitting at the, like, uh, you know, who gets to sit in what chair at the boardroom, whether it's the board of a small company or the evil league of evil, you know, it, these things matter to us. So yeah. I just, yeah, there's just so many, this episode, this collection of episodes reminds me of everything I love about the Orville because you're right. We, we could have had a full episode where we just talked about the ethics and philosophy. And I'm, I love that. And I know you love it, but I'm glad you pulled this back to everything else. But there's also some, all this other stuff, just the human emotions of it. There's a quote in terms of like, you know, talking about like, as you said, like, how do you experience things? You know, where it's like, and I think actually Joseph Stalin said this, I'm not sure, not someone I'm supporting by any means, but it's, I think, a a truth. One death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, Mm. you know? And I think that's, that's kind of the point we're talking about earlier about the lived experience. And I think in the same way... If they ask the Kalons what happened to their biologicals who built them, and they just say, we wiped them all out... It doesn't have nearly the power of seeing that mountain of bones and skulls. Yeah. And like, given how long ago that happened and like the biology of those bones, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but I don't care because it was like, I will never forget that image. Like that image is just stuck in my brain now. And yeah. And it's like, extricably linked to the Kalon. Like, the Kalon yeah. are the people that did that now. And now, yeah. I, the, the crazy thing is, I don't think we're going to go on a story into the future of this this uh, franchise where it's just about killing the Kalon, because that's not what the stories yeah. are about. They're going no. go to the, they're gonna have to defend themselves. They're going to be at war with the Kalon. But, like, I think eventually they're going to have to figure out a way to make peace. 
And right. that is going to be fascinating. It's like the the people that we know are these genocidal creatures uh, who have tried to commit that genocide on, you know, the union and all biologicals. And like, what do you do when you're mm-hmm. faced with that? And then what do you do when you're faced with that sort of existential terror and you're having to ally with people who have a completely different moral system than you do? Right. It's it's such a great setup for so many stories going forward that are going to be so germane to like what we're going yeah. through today. Uh it's so so good. By the way, well, you mentioned it being better effects. Have you seen the single scene they've released from season 3 yet? No, I haven't. You know me, I don't ever want to see spoilers or anything like that. that. They released one final one scene from season 3, and I don't think it's a spoiler in it like from the I don't think there's a spoiler in it for the uh show. Yeah. But it is one scene and the effects. I think that's why they released this scene. The effects are mm. insane. It's a battle oh, sequence. Oh, nice. It's like a space battle sequence. And the effects yeah. are as good as any space effects I've ever seen. It's amazing. You know, you love when a show like that gets a good budget. Because that's always the thought is like, yeah, like I, I don't think they did anything wrong. I just think they had a small budget, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was just going back to the thing about the Kalon. I think it's also, and I think this is intentional, it's such a good like illustration of how the order in which we learn things is going to definitely affect things because we go through it as the audience the same way that the union does and our heroes do, which is you first see the pile of bones, which is just this incredibly like, you know, evocative hits you very hard image. And then you realize what that means of billions of people were killed. And like now it's like the idea that you could justify that is just impossible. And then I learned that the Kalon were horribly tortured and abused. And this was basically, like, basically this was a, a group of slaves rising up against their masters. Yeah, And absolutely. like, I remember thinking, if I learned that story first, I feel like, okay, I now have some understanding of you and I feel your justification and I feel like I can have a little sympathy for why you felt you needed to do this. But still, wow, talk about literal overkill. I think if we had heard this in the, in the different order, I think if we had learned that the Kalons were a former, like, deeply oppressed, enslaved race that had rised up and, and overthrown their masters, we would have been like, yeah, go you! Like, fight the righteous fight, Kalon! And then we had learned that not only had they overthrown their masters, but they had completely genocided their masters. We would have been like, okay, well, I'm... Um, Maybe you, know, maybe you did what you had to do in that in that situation. Maybe, maybe, maybe you did what you had to do, but I have trouble believing it. I'm mm-hmm. a little concerned that overkill. Yeah. But I feel like our attitude towards the Kalon would be fundamentally different. Absolutely, because we started. And I, I think that's brilliant because I think it's really good that they like, like I I I want to know more about what happened because I do feel like I want I want the union to have more sympathy for the Kalon, but also then there's a the sense of like, so, but the Kalon have to learn to not keep equating. This group of biologicals tortured us, so that means all biologicals are terrible. Well, and it's just, it's, it's essentialization. I mean, that's all it is. Yeah. It's looking at one group of people and assuming they're all going to be that way. You mentioned it right. earlier, but, like, that's it. And, like, that's just not how beings work, you know? Right. I want to keep saying people because we're people, but, like, that's how none of these beings work, you know? They're all going to be individuals amongst the whole. And this particular episode is a... Uh, shocking realization when these y- you can completely understand why the Kalon did what they did. Um, yeah. Now again, like you said, genociding the entire planet maybe too far, uh, but the, the, when you've been completely treated worthlessly 
and and you have to rise up against slave masters like it's hard to know how to make that and i can right. see especially when you have no emotions when you're a programmed being it's just coldly logical like oh these beings are treating us without worth and there's nothing we can do to convince them that we're worth anything you know we we just have to destroy them like it's 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 yeah. completely understandable what they've done but now they're going too far and we have to like <laughs> you stand up to that the union has to stand up to that yeah, what a killer episode, man! What it really a killer is. Episode. I remember thinking at one point, like, I'm glad it's part of the TV show. And generally, I'm always like, TV show is so much better. But I kind of like, I, I feel like this story itself is so good. You could have taken this story, added in the first 20 minutes some backstory about who Isaac is and what's happening with him, added some backstory about the Krill, pump up the effects, and this could be an hour and 40 minute movie. Yeah. You know, because it's got just like the whole and, and standalone. Yeah, it could. You mentioned the mundanity of the comedy. I've often said, uh, I'm a fan of Joss Whedon's work. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, another guy who's, uh, who's you know, uh, controversial these days, but his, uh, I-, I love his work. And the reason I've always said I love his work is because he does a great job with the comedy. Mm-hmm. And because we sit with his characters in these comedic moments living together, like, and it is kind of that mundane thing, but it's that mundane comedy of, you know, speaking of Buffy, like Xander and Buffy and Willow sitting together in a room, having a conversation when those big hero moments come, it makes those hero moments so much more powerful because they feel like real people. And I feel like this show is pulling that off in a way that I've really only seen from Whedon. Like Whedon's one of my favorite uh yeah uh, favorite creators because of that. Because I, I I hang out with his characters. When they're all sitting in a room, it feels like I'm hanging out with them. They're my friends. And then when they get in danger, I feel like no no no. I need my friends to not be in danger. You know, and when he yeah. when he inevitably kills someone off, because he that's the other thing he loves to do. It's like the pain is real because I'll never see that friend of mine sit with his friends and make the jokes I like to see them joke about, you know, it's, it's very, uh, it's a powerful way of storytelling. And I think that it makes the, the moment when Isaac is willing to sacrifice himself or the moment when, uh, uh, Mercer is willing to blow up the ship to save earth. It makes those moments feel so much more powerful because they're feel, they feel like real people to us. I love it. I love that, uh, mechanism. No, I, I think you're so right. And I'm, um, I, I, my feelings on uh, Joss and his work have changed a lot because I don't think they've aged terribly well, but I definitely agree that there's a lot of brilliance there, to be sure. And you're right, totally about the mundanity. And I, I just want to kind of comment, like, th- there's a moment, I don't want to spoil anything for me. And Buffy is 20 years old at this point, but I, I won't give too many of the details. You can just but, say spoiler uh, alert and people can yeah. get them for 30 seconds. You know, there's a moment when the characters are all, because this is like mundanity as tragedy, but it's so perfect where all the characters, the characters have experienced this horrible tragedy and they've all like driven over in a complete rush to like be with each other in this horrible moment. And all you're thinking is how they want to be with each other in this horrible moment. And of course, like they all just drove over there and they probably didn't think about where they parked. And you see one of them getting a parking ticket because the cop doesn't have any idea that they're all like dealing with this horrible tragedy they just know a car is parked in the wrong place and i remember when my own mother died i thought about that scene so often because there were those little things you know and i like would deal like you know someone would cut me off in traffic and i'd be like my mother just died how oh yeah the rest of the world doesn't know about this the the story you're talking about is when a character loses a family member which like 
you know, it is not a supernatural event. And it's one of the most powerful episodes of Buffy because, like, it's not yeah. about the supernatural. Like, that's, it, it's so hard. To, yeah, I totally feel you. Yeah. Ugh. There's one moment, and again, this is just like the, how much I think Seth MacFarlane loves Star Trek especially, but science fiction in general, where they are bringing um, Isaac to the Kalon, and he's laid out on this kind of, like, floating table. And, like, it's not rolling or anything. It's just, like, floating, but they're kind of, like, pushing it along. And you maybe need to have seen Empire Strikes Back a million times to have gotten this, but it was an exact parallel to when Boba Fett is kind of pushing Han Solo's, you know, carbonite frozen body. And it's that same, like, there's nothing holding it up. It's just kind of, like, repulsor lift, whatever, floating. But the people are kind of, like, pushing it like it's a table. And it was just such a tiny, like, two-second blinking-you-miss-it moment. But I don't think there's any possible way it wasn't a reference to Empire Strikes Back. And I just, nice. it just made me love uh, Seth all the much more for that. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Uh, I know you got to go, and I got to go. We've been at this for an hour now. Uh, yep. Thank you, guys. I, I'd love to. I, we need to talk about Boba Fett soon, because I, 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 need, I need to hear what you're thinking. Um, yeah. I, I, I thought it was, I thought, especially the last half, I really enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. Thanks, guys, for joining us. You can actually hear seven episodes of me talking about Boba Fett, uh, along That's with right. Ashley Coffin on the Star Wars Universe podcast. Yeah, yeah. She, she's been chatting about that on some of the other casts. Uh, so, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, check it, go check out the Star Wars Universe podcast, everybody. We'll be back uh, real soon. Anything else you want to plug before we shuffle off? No, Star Wars, uh, Star Wars Universe podcast, superhero ethics, lots of good things happening there. By the time this goes up, the Matrix episode that I keep talking about, maybe a couple of uh, episodes back. But if you just search for the Matrix, uh, you should be able to easily find it. It is episode one sixty six. Sweet, sweet. Uh, yeah, that's that's exciting. I, I, we just did the Matrix and Bingers too, and I love I just the Matrix are so much fun. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thanks guys so much. We will be back very soon. Check us out strandapanda.com for all those strandapanda podcasts. Uh, we'll be back soon. Peace. War. Thank you for listening to PandaVision. We are a member of the Stranded Panda Network. For all of our podcasts and other creative geeky projects, check out strandedpanda.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.